Welcome to the podcast. Well, let's get started with the listener email today. This email is from Kevin. He says, quote unquote, I don't appreciate your Jan 1 podcast saying to not give old white men more money. My father is old and white, you racist. Well, Kevin, you can suck my d- And just a heads up, Kevin, I'm white. Kevin, after you get done with this episode, why don't you go re-listen to episode 107 and actually try to comprehend what I said instead of taking the time to write me from, I don't know, a burner email account? On a lighter note, we'll be saving our new Patreon shoutouts for the end of the episode, so stick around if you're a new member to hear your name. And thank you if you signed up to support the podcast. If you haven't had a chance to sign up, I'm jumping on one-on-one calls with our new members to see what we can do to help you with your business and connect you with other listeners of the podcast. So if you're interested in joining, go check out our page at millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon, or scroll down to the end of the episode notes below to see who supported us so far and how you can learn more. Last but not least, want to give a shout out to the CastBox app. They're featuring our podcast for the next two weeks on their homepage because of the subscriber count and our audience interaction in that. If you haven't downloaded it, it's an awesome way for you to leave comments about individual episodes or about the podcast in general. So consider downloading the CastBox app so you can get your voice heard as well. We always appreciate kind words of encouragement about the podcast or trolls like Kevin. Now, time to get started with this episode, but just be forewarned. If you're in an environment with children, you should probably listen to this episode at a different time. Our guest is quite eclectic and enjoys throwing around the F-bomb. Without further ado, let's get this party started. The fact that my entrepreneur uncle, who owned four super successful businesses, was mocking me, that shit stung. I mean, that really settled in and stung. I'm not a math genius, but I'm pretty sure we're going to lose a shit ton of money if we keep doing this. They don't want you to advertise sparklers, so I'll advertise sparkles. This is when the story gets really fun. I make no money, and of course, everyone you know then makes fun of you. That's one thing you need to let every entrepreneur know. No one's going to there was a time in my life where I couldn't go out to eat. I didn't have any money. So you'd have to tell people, sorry, I can't go out to eat. I broke down and bawled on my wife's shoulder after it happened, telling her I, it was supposed to work. That's the only way I could get your attention. Sorry about that. Wow, I'm boring the fuck out of this guy. literally <laughs> left the meeting. I know. I tried kept to get your attention. Okay. <laughs> now it's 100% recording, so we're good. Oh, you got to include that shit in the interview, dude. All right. Where'd I drop off? Sorry. All right. Now it's 100% recorded. Are you ready? Do you mind if we redo this introduction? Yeah. All right. I'm Mark Lazarte, tech genius. I am 50 years old, just turned 50 a month ago. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, base all my operations out of Minnesota. I own six companies currently. I've owned four or five others in the past. And my latest venture that I'm mostly focused on, most of my energy goes into, is the Blue Sun Soda Shop, which is the largest soda shop in the world. And yeah, you were giving me a brief rundown on that, but do you want to just hit us up? You say you have six companies that you run today? Yeah, I've got six different enterprises running right now. I have my fireworks company, which is a seasonal fireworks company. I have a wedding supply company that's online, all online sales. I have the soda shop, which is the largest soda shop in the world. I have a distribution company. We do manufacturing of sodas and co-packing for sodas as well. And I own commercial real estate and play uh, slumlord to commercial real estate a little bit. What are you spending most of your time doing now? Right now, I spend most of my time on the soda shop, working on the soda shop and the different aspects of it, the manufacturing and the distribution. Okay. If you don't mind repeating yourself, tell us about the soda shop. You're saying that your landlord basically wanted you to buy the building as well? Yeah. So what happened was we just office in this building. This building was a five suite strip mall sort of thing. And we just leased one of the spots in it for office space. And the landlord kept asking me to buy the building, buy the building, buy the building. I didn't want to buy the building, kept blowing them off. And finally, I just told him, I said, you know what, make me an offer I can't say no to, and I'll buy the building. And he came back and made me an offer that I couldn't say no to. So I ended up buying the building. And when I bought the building, 
I thought, well, there's this big empty spot next door, 3,500 square feet. I could try and get a tenant in there and then have to deal with a tenant. Or I could just open a soda shop over there because I'd had this thing spinning around in my head for years about opening a soda shop. And I thought, I own the building. That means I don't have to worry about rent. If I pay rent late, I know the landlord. I can kind of screw around with this and open this up and it won't make any money, but it'll be fun to do. So that's what you've been doing? I mean, were you into making your own sodas at home or something? Not even a little bit. It started from, I used to own a software company and the tech guys always wanted to go out to the craft beer places to have meetings because everyone's into craft beer, I guess. And I don't like beer. I just never have, probably never will. We'd go out to these craft beer places and the server would say, hey, would you like to try this pale ale that we dip three strawberries in every glass and then swirl it exactly 12 times with a cinnamon stick while showing it a picture of Alan Alda? They'd get done with all that and they'd get to me and I'd just go, I don't like beer. What do you have for me? And they'd go, oh, we got Coke and Sprite. And I was like, that's such a crock of shit. You got 20 different beers for all these guys with a multitude of different flavors. And then when you get to me, it's Coke and Sprite in some fountain soda machine that you've never cleaned. Now it's time to make your own soda shop instead. Resist that urge. Yeah. So I had that all in the back of my head from seeing another guy in California that had a big giant soda shop. So I just started looking up how many different soda companies are there out there. I mean, there's thousands of different craft sodas out there that you can get. And I thought, I like soda. I like it more than beer. And if I went out to a place and they offered me a raspberry cream soda, I'd buy a raspberry cream soda before I'd buy a Pepsi or a Mountain Dew or 7-Up, something plain that I can get anywhere else. I thought, you know what, I'm going to take this space. I'm going to turn it into a soda shop and nobody else is going to give a shit about it. I'll open this. I won't make any money at it, but it'll be fun for me to do. I know you had mentioned a couple other companies because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of relationships between them. You said something about fireworks and sparklers as well. They all have one thing in common. Can you guess what the one thing is? They make money? Well, they do. (laughs) You're involved? You're the owner? (laughs) One thing they have in common is that they are all things that make people happy. Okay. People buy fireworks and they're happy. They're celebrating something. People buy wedding supplies. They're happy. They're celebrating something. And when people buy sugar, they're happy. Was this an afterthought after you kind of looked at it or was this a fourth? It was an afterthought. When I put them all up on the board, I realized that every business that I've enjoyed doing is something that has to do with people being happy. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even thinking about it now. And I started numerous businesses that didn't make people happy and I didn't enjoy doing them, even though they made money. Right. I think we all figure out in life that as you go through it, it's not all about the making the money. It's more about enjoying your life, right? Money's easy, especially if you want to be an asshole, then making money is super easy. But at some point, you got to not be working and doing something else and you got to enjoy your life. I mean, what good is money if you're not enjoying life and doing anything with it? Why don't we reel back to the beginning, kind of how you got started as an entrepreneur and how you got into all these different businesses and we can just kind of go step by step or year by year as far as how you got started. How far back do you want to go is to be an entrepreneur because that shit I was born with. Well, how about you said you dropped out of high school? Why don't we start there and then we can fast forward to different parts that you think would be great for anyone who's listening? Sure. I dropped out of high school, but before that, I sold things my whole life. I used to dig golf balls out of golf ponds and sell them to the golfers on the course. I used to make rock candy and sell it in school. I used to buy giant boxes of condoms and sell them to my middle school compadres because they were too embarrassed to buy them. I could sell them for five bucks a piece so everyone felt cool carrying them around. But when I was in high school, high school just wasn't my gig. School in general wasn't my gig. It's not that I couldn't be good at it. I just didn't enjoy it. I don't enjoy the structure. I don't enjoy being taught things that I find useless, like taking calc and trig. I'm never going to use that. And I know I'm never going to use that because I don't enjoy doing it. So I'm sure as hell not going to sit at a desk and do it for 40 hours a week. Didn't make a lot of sense. Also, I wasn't very popular. I got my ass kicked a lot in school. I decided to drop out because I could go to work. And for me, that made sense to go to work instead of keeping at school. It didn't make sense to anybody else in my family or the guidance counselors or any of them, but it made really good sense to me. So I dropped out. And was this in Minneapolis too? No, this was in a suburb of Minneapolis. I grew up in the suburbs. I spent the first 10 years of my life in the country on a farm. Then we moved up to the suburbs, Apple Valley, which is south of Minneapolis. 
I was a suburban kid. I didn't fit in. I had long hair and earrings. I dropped out and I just worked for a long time. Then I ended up moving to Virginia for a while. To sell condoms or what? No, I was following a girl. I was stupid. <laughs> so I ended up in Virginia and then I ended up staying down there. She broke up with me, but I ended up staying down there for about four years. And then I moved back up here. And when I came back up here, I was instantly taken by the fact that none of my friends had changed at all. They were all the exact same people that I had left four years ago. I kept thinking, God, shouldn't we be trying to get our shit together and go forward in life? And they just didn't. I kind of stopped hanging around the people that had been my friends all through my teenage years. And I started working in sales. I worked in sales because if you're a high school dropout, the only job where you can make more than just above minimum wage is sales. And I was good at it, but I didn't really enjoy it. While I was doing that, I kept trying to start other businesses because I just wanted to do my own thing. I started a landscaping company because I had two days a week off and I didn't like sitting around on my days off. I figured if I took a day off, I'd spend money. So if I just avoided days off, I wouldn't spend money. Makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense. Well, at least you knew yourself. Yeah, exactly. I spent a summer doing landscaping and amazingly, I won like every bid because I was too stupid to realize the amount of time and energy that goes into doing Doing these landscape projects. Everyone was hiring me and I was just absolutely killing myself because it was just me and maybe I'd grab my girlfriend at the time to come help me for something. I plowed through an entire summer of that and said, I don't want to do that shit the rest of my life. I think right after that, I started a turnover painting company. If you know what turnover painting is. I do not. Tell us. When an apartment building at the end of the month when apartments come available, they send in paint crews whose sole job is because you have to paint an apartment when a new tenant comes in. But because it's all done in a very short period of time, you have to be really fast and paint a lot of apartments in two or three days. Most people paint a room of their house over a weekend. You got to be able to plow through 10, 15 apartments a day doing this turnover painting. How old were you when you were doing this? Oh, I was 25, 26, 27, right in that range. These were still your first businesses because you're still like an independent contractor doing your own thing? Yep. Okay. I did that and we signed up a big contract and went out and did it. And I quickly decided I didn't like being a turnover painter. There's nothing interesting about a turnover painter. Like, I mean, the job is monotonous as hell. Every place you're painting is beige. Everything about it was monotony. I can understand how some people would love it, but man, I wanted nothing to do with that shit. After that, I think I got a little bit more involved in sales to where I started getting paid decent money at the sales jobs. And what do you think is decent money? It's so we can relate. I was making around 50K. Okay. This is pre-2000. It's a decent living. You can pay your bills. They say right now, anything over 60K doesn't make any happiness. Right. And going from someone that was always struggling to pay their bills to someone who now actually has some extra money at the end of the month, that was a nice feeling. Got a new car. And I started to settle in. I became a sales manager and then a store manager at a place. And I was starting to really settle into, okay, this is what I'm doing. And this is when I got my kick in the ass is I went to a wedding. My uncle, his daughter, my cousin was getting married and we fly down to Virginia. He's got this giant wedding. It's in the equivalent of a basilica. The reception's at this private golf course with the string quartet in the corner and ice sculptures. He dumped like 80 grand into this wedding or something crazy like that. They dumped into a wedding. And this is one of my favorite uncles. I find him at the wedding reception. He's sitting over in the corner with a bottle of wine. He's got his own bottle of wine, and rightfully so. <laughs> right. He also owns a vineyard. It was his own wine. Okay, literally. Yeah, but he owns like four companies. Mm -hmm. He's always been the guy starting businesses. I come over to him, and I'm kind of bragging a little bit about how I'm making 50 grand a year. I think we bought a house. Maybe we're looking at buying a house, but I'm a store manager. Bah, 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 bah. And he starts laughing at me. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck? What are you doing, man? And he is just cackling. He looks at me and goes, oh, man, did you ever pussy out? And I was just like, whoa, 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 what? You're supposed to be like super proud of me and be like, hey, you did it. Look at you. You're a grown up, an adult. He looks at me and he goes, Man, if you hadn't chicken shitted and settled down, you'd be a fucking millionaire by now. But you played the safe route. Well, good for you. <laughs> and he just sits there mocking me. That shit stung. 
I mean, that really settled in and stung. And yet it was still years before I started anything after that. But that just stuck in my head. The fact that my entrepreneur uncle, who owned four super successful businesses, was mocking me for making, which was a decent living and a comfortable, safe existence. He just thought that was ridiculous that I would do that. Hopefully that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it and we talk, something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which... I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. Did you ever tell him about that, that you still remember that? Oh, hell yeah, I did. After I started my first couple of companies, I needed some startup money for one of them. So I hit him up for it. And I said, and you can't say no, because you're <laughs> crazy. This shit's happening. Mm. You have to do this. Why don't you fast forward and tell us about that first company you ended up starting after he told you about that? So the first company I started was the fireworks company. The first one I stuck with, I should say, was the fireworks company. What year was it? Just so we all know. 2004. Okay. In 2003, fireworks became legal in Minnesota, and I decided I'm going to start a fireworks company. I was still working my full-time job, and my full-time job was sales, and they were working me like 60 hours a week. And what I would do is I would plan every meeting that I ever had to do with the fireworks company had to happen between 12 and 1 because that's when I could take my lunch hour or on my days off. I would bring a change of clothes to work with me so that if I had a meeting, I would get in my car, drive away with my shirt, change my shirt, and then go have a meeting with somebody. And then I'd always tell them that I had to leave because I had another meeting. And I was basically just setting it up that I am so busy with all the stuff that I'm doing that I can only take meetings for certain times and whatnot. I talked with my vendors and I would call them and go, and we're used to doing net 30 on everything. Is that acceptable with you? And they'd, oh yeah, of course. Well, I've never done net 30 in my entire life. I'm writing check number 1001 to these people, but I wanted them to think that I'd been doing this shit a long time so that they extend me credit and whatnot. And what's net 30 mean? Net 30 means that they send you an invoice and you don't have to pay the bill for 30 days. Right. Well, and it's good because at least you're in a sales role where you kind of knew these terms that you could throw out. I knew the terms so I could talk the talk. Right. Tell people all the time, just talk the talk. That'll get you through half of the shit. At least people right now learning can say if they're starting their own company, they can use that same line that you're usually net 30. Yeah. Talk like you've been doing this for 50 years because no one wants to give credit or extend any sort of terms or even talk to someone who's just starting because they know that likelihood is they're going to fail. Then we started this fireworks company. Six months leading up to it, I don't know, get up and go to work in the morning. I'd get to work at like 10, get home at six, maybe, or eight or nine, depending upon the shift that I had to work. And I'd spend a couple hours with the wife and kids. And then when they went to bed, I'd go down to the basement to my office and just work till two or three o'clock in the morning on figuring out everything and getting everything lined up. When you say fireworks companies, is this like those fireworks tents we're thinking about? Or are you trying to make your own fireworks? Yeah, no, the tents that you see popping up in parking lots. So I just stay up late, work on my days off, work on any time you have off. It was so bad that like if we had Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving, if we were at family events, I would always fall asleep at family events because I was so exhausted all the time. Well, would your wife and kids care and as far as how much hours you were spending with them versus like trying to start this new business while you already had your sales gig? Well, not really, because if you come home and you spend two, three solid hours with your family, actually paying attention to them and talking to them, you're still doing more than most people do. Even people that just have full-time jobs, I mean, they all come home and just stare off and don't talk to each other, don't pay attention to each other. It's all about just pounding in some quality time. And also my family was pretty young at that point. We only had the one daughter 
And then Vincent came along in 2004. He came along right as I started all of this. And how old were you when you started it? 35. 35? Okay. Up to this point, you had all these little entrepreneur ventures and stuff, but this was your first business that now looking back, you're still doing today that's been successful? Yeah. It was the first one that not only was successful, but that I wanted to keep doing. I'd started other things that I could have made a living at, but I just didn't want to keep doing and I think that's an important part. I think some people who start a business, they're like, oh, well, I started this business. I got to keep doing it. But that's your choice. Nope. Yeah, you don't got to keep doing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for sure, man. Right. Just because it makes you money isn't a good enough reason to keep doing it. Tell us about doing these fireworks. You didn't have any background in it, it sounds like. How do you get this set up and was it successful? We get the first year set up. We set up eight locations our first year. It was a complete shit show. Because I had no idea what the hell I was doing, I did everything wrong. We made absolutely no money whatsoever. I remember it rained on July 4th, and I remember walking around going, so that's how it's going to fucking be. (laughs) Especially on the 4th. That's your big day, right? Yeah, that's the biggest day of the year, and it was raining all day. And I remember I had a partner my first year, but he dropped out after that. And his dad was helping us tear down stuff afterwards. And I told his dad, man, we made a lot of mistakes. And his dad goes, they're only mistakes if you keep doing them. And I was like, huh, shit, that's good advice, man. It's pretty smart. I did my first year and I basically lost, I didn't lose money. What I figured it out once was like $118. So that's a hefty profit. Yeah, exactly. After killing myself for six months, like all day, all night, it was so bad. At least you weren't negative, right? I guess we could look at the positive there. Right. That was nice. But still, it was bad because I had done the numbers and what we were going to make and everything. And we weren't even close to that. And I still keep that sheet around me of the projections of the numbers that we would do in sales so I can remain humble and realize how little I know about shit. After this part, this is obviously like a seasonal business, right? Yeah. You got two weeks that you can make money and that's it. You closed up shop for that year. You say you learned something from it and waited till next year to redo it again? Well, here's where it gets fun. You ready? We're ready for the fun parts. This is when the story gets really fun. I make no money. And of course, everyone you know then makes fun of you (laughs) for chasing your dream. Like we were in a sales like maybe two weeks after. And I changed my cell phone ring to that of a bottle rocket going off. And my phone rang in the sales meeting. And the sales manager at the time looks at me and goes, oh, you're still chasing that dream? Went to go see the family not too long after that and literally was being mocked and ridiculed by them for it not succeeding. That's one thing you need to let every entrepreneur know. No one's going to support you. That is the shit that happens in movies, man. (laughs) That does not really happen. Even if you do well, they might mock you for that, doing well, right? Well, we'll get to the doing well, but if you do well, it's even worse. There is no winning if you're an entrepreneur. (laughs) I'm going to talk all your listeners out of being an entrepreneur all to get a job by the end of this thing. Did that hurt when people were making fun of you for that? It sucks, man. I broke down and bawled on my wife's shoulder after it happened, telling her it was supposed to work. I can't believe this didn't work. I took all the advice from everyone. I listened to everyone and what they said, and it didn't work. I spent about a month really depressed because I was like, I'm just, this is what I'm going to be the rest of my life. I'm going to be a guy that sells hot tubs for a living. That's just what I'm going to do. I'll make a decent living and I'll be one of these old guys standing outside puffing a cigarette, talking about all the bad shit that happens in his life. But you didn't do that, right? No. After about a month, I have a nice ability about myself is that when I get knocked down, I usually have a bad reaction for a short period of time. It can be a day or a week. Usually I get over it. Like my stubbornness kicks in. I get pissed off and angry about it. After about a month, I started looking at the sales and looking at the numbers. And I realized that more than half of the dollar amount that came in came from just two locations. And I said, okay, that means these other six locations suck. These two were good. Why were they good? And I just started breaking it down and breaking it down. And then I realized why they were good. And I said, okay, I think what I need to do then, because if I had eight locations that did as well as these two, I would have been fine. I wouldn't have been rich, but I would have been fine. I would have made enough money to make through the year, pay my bills and do shit. I told my partner, I said, hey, I think I got this figured out. And he's like, yeah, well, you have fun with that. I got no interest in doing this shit with you anymore. And I was like, all right, I understand that. 
I already sold this to you once. I don't think I'm going to be able to sell it to you again. I start looking at it and going, I think I can do this. I think I figured out how to do this. Well, round about then I hurt my back at work and I hurt it bad enough to where I couldn't even go into work. I'm spending about two, three months trying to get my back fixed, going to the doctors, going to the chiropractors, going to everybody, just trying to get this fixed so I can actually walk again. I finally get it to the point to where I can go in. And, you know, you think your sales job, how much do you need of your back? The problem is you got to walk. You got to move around. You got to be able to do shit. And I couldn't even walk. It was so bad. I got to the point to where I could go back to work where I would just sit until people came in and then talk to them. We ended up doing an MRI on my entire back and found out I had somehow destroyed something right in the middle of my back. And I don't remember the technical terms. It's still destroyed, but I still don't remember it. The doctor basically said, look, we can't make it better and you're not going to make it worse, but you're going to be in pain the rest of your life and it's going to go out on you every now and then. I'm like, well, that's great fucking news. All right. (laughs) Right. Because you're 35, 36 at this point, right? Exactly, exactly. Great, so I'm going to turn into Dr. House at some point in my life. Now, keep in mind, I also have a lawyer during all of this because my boss tried to fire me because I wasn't coming into work, despite the fact that I was going to the doctor and had turned in notes and all this other stuff. My boss had literally tried and fire me. I had had to hire a lawyer and file a work comp claim because I didn't want to get fired. Now my lawyer says, all right, well, now we have to file a claim against the insurance and the work comp because you have permanent damage. And I'm like, okay, great. What does that mean? He goes through his rigmarole. By the way, I hated my lawyer the entire time. One of the biggest pricks I've ever met in my life. And that is exactly why I kept him because he was a prick. Well, that's good advice if we need a lawyer thinking that way. Yeah, don't like your lawyer. I had a nice lawyer for my first divorce. He was a great guy. I got along with him well. My first divorce, I've only been divorced once. He was a great guy, but he got me screwed to the wall. So lawyers should be pricks. As we're getting into spring and I'm planning on second year of fireworks, I have no money to launch it for the second year. I need about 20 grand. About 20 grand will get just the basics off of the ground. My lawyer comes back to me and he says, hey, here's the deal. The insurance company has offered us a settlement, but here's the settlement. I don't remember the exact numbers, but how it worked out was I would get a chunk of money. After the lawyer took his chunk of money, I would have my 20 grand to start fireworks, plus enough to pay off all my bills that had kind of accumulated. But the catch was I had to quit my job because the insurance company didn't want me on the insurance anymore. And I had signed a no compete that said that I could not work in that industry, the same one that I'd been in for 15 years, for at least three years or something like that. And the deal I was offered was you got to quit, you can't get another job, and you're only going to have enough money to get through fireworks season. So I went home and I told my wife, I said, here's the deal. I want to put 20 grand into a business that made no money last year. And I also have to quit my job the one job that I'm actually qualified for. So I'm going to take all of our money and gamble it on something that failed last year and quit my job so that we have no benefits and no income. How'd she take it? My wife said, we own a camper. We'll never be homeless. And if you don't do it, you'll kick yourself forever. Good wife. (laughs) Great wife, dude. (laughs) So quit my job, put the 20 grand into the business. And that season, we more than doubled sales which was enough to sort of carry me through the year. What do you see in those two locations versus the other six? And, and what did you do this second year to make that much more money? What I realized in those two locations was they both had a couple of things in common. Was Number one, it was a big visible parking lot. The tent stood out. Also, the traffic was moving very slowly through there. A lot of stop signs. You're not setting up on a highway where people are doing 50 and zipping on by because no one's going to lock up their brakes and go driving back for fireworks. They were already driving slow and it was also in shopping areas. So they're already driving slow and they're already in the mindset of they're spending money. That's what I went after was eight locations that match that criteria. Okay. You made enough that second year, so you must have felt least successful then, right? Especially compared to the year before. I felt good. I mean, I felt pretty good, but then I didn't have a job. I didn't have any benefits. The business that I own makes money two weeks a year. That sucks. And I struggled for years with it because you can save as much as you want, but at some point you're probably going to run out of money. What are you doing the next 11 months after the fireworks season, second year? I would sit around and analyze the previous years, but I also played poker professionally. 
for a while. I would play a lot of poker online and in live games to compensate my income and make sure we could make it through. But I also looked for other things to do because we had so much off time. Are you talking about like business-wise? Yeah, other businesses that we could start. I looked for other shit I could sell in parking lots is basically what I just kept looking for. And it makes sense because you've just figured out how to at least make the fireworks business better. So you're just using that knowledge that you have. Well, and I already have relationships with all these guys that own these parking lots. They'll let me set up to do more stuff if I can find something to do. Problem was, I just couldn't find something to do. You don't want to sell Christmas trees or anything? Man, I looked at Christmas trees and the problem, those guys, everywhere I searched for pricing on Christmas trees, it looked to me like you could maybe double the price of a Christmas tree. And the problem then is you still have a bunch of Christmas trees left over at the end. So you didn't make any money on those. I'm like, man, I'll over order or under order or I'll do something wrong and lose a shit ton of money. I looked at pumpkins for the fall, Christmas trees, greenhouses, vegetable stands, sweet corn. I looked at tons of stuff, just trying to find something to make it work. What do you end up doing? You told us that you're doing some poker on the side and what else, as far as like business-wise, you're looking at different ones to do. Eventually, one of my fireworks suppliers, he tells me I should get into wedding sparklers. I told him, I'd blown him off for about a year on this conversation about wedding sparklers because it didn't make any sense to me. So finally, he's just bugging me, bugging me, bugging me. I say, fine. We had a couple of good seasons. I had a, an extra money. I think I ordered like five grand in sparklers and I decide I'm going to go to the wedding shows. I'm talking to the guy that's working for me at the time. And I'm like, you and me, we're going to be driving around the country doing wedding shows. Your dream come true, right? Oh, God. Yeah. And we're two guys that do not belong at wedding shows. Neither one of us are subtle men. We're not the slight guys that are wearing tight pants. and what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see your LinkedIn picture with a cowboy hat and a beard and glasses. Yeah, exactly, man. Not the guy that gets up on a stage at a bridal show. So then we set up at a bridal show here in Minneapolis. And now you got the two of us decorating a bridal booth. That was hilarious. We set up this booth and decorated it. We had three sales. We paid $1,100 for the booth and we had sales totaling $150. So that's not a good ROI. Yeah, I was like, I'm not a math genius, but I'm pretty sure we're going to lose a shit ton of money if we keep doing this. Now, I had also set up a website that people could order them on, and it was the shittiest, clunkiest thing ever. I had that set up, and we were handing out cards. And like the week after, maybe three people bought online. Okay, that was six. So then they send over the information about the actual bridal show. Like, hey, here's how many people showed up. Here's how many people did this, blah, 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 blah. And I saw that it was, it was something like only 190 brides were actually there. The rest of them were dreamers and bridesmaids and men that had been drug along unwillingly and whatnot. So I said, okay, that was 190 brides. And we got 3% of them to buy our product. And I said, and we didn't even do a good job displaying it, showing it, pitching it, anything. It. I said, maybe we'll try a little bit better booth and see how we can do this again. There's another show two months later. And we put a little more money into the booth and make it look a little more elegant and whatnot. And I think we had four or five, maybe six sales. And then again, the week afterwards, we had three or four more sales online. And I'm like, well, this is never going to work at these wedding shows because we just can't make enough money off. Of it. But we're getting people to buy this online. I talked with my web guy and I said, how do we build a site that's actually good to buy shit at? We tweaked the site a little bit, adjusted it, and made it look a little prettier and whatnot. Then I said, okay, now how do we get people to actually see the website? Because at the wedding show, we were handing them our card. How do we just get random people to see it? And he said, well, we're going to have to use Google AdWords because we're not going to pop up in a normal Google search. So I said, okay, cool. I go on Google AdWords and I drop like 500 bucks into it or something like that. I tell Google to just go ahead and pick everything for me and run my campaign. Two days later, Google has burned through my $500 and we've had like four sales. I called my web guy and I go, what? Shit didn't work. And he goes, well, what did you do? And I told him what I did. And he goes, dude, you can't let Google pick your shit. He goes, their job is to get your money, not to promote this. They don't know the business. He said, you need to learn how to use Google AdWords. I probably spent a week straight looking at 
every video online I could find about Google AdWords. And Google does a really good job. Don't get me wrong on teaching you this shit. It's not their fault they don't know your business. But I watched every YouTube video I could find. So then I sat down and I put together an actual campaign with multiple ads, ABC testing, everything like that. Constantly switching out things, testing keywords, checking quality scores, making my own bids instead of letting them be automated. And did you enjoy doing all this? Because this was a little different than what you've done before too. I love data. I love figuring out patterns in data. That is literally one of my obsessions, is trying to figure out why something works. I love it, no matter what it is. It's why I like crazy people too, because you can't figure them out. Well, yeah, it makes sense even with the fireworks stuff. You look back afterwards, right? Trying to figure out what works. I think any business person needs to take those keys. Oh, yeah. If you don't love doing that, then forget about it. Because you're never going to learn from anything. You're never going to see patterns. You're never going to be able to direct your business in the right direction. And we didn't say it's WeddingDaySparklers.com in case anyone wants to check your, your pretty site today. Tell us what you learned from doing these AdWords. What happened? Here's the bitch about AdWords is that you do not get information quickly. Because you can't make a decision based on 50 clicks. You have to wait for thousands of clicks so that you can see things happen. I settle in and I say, okay, I'll dump 500 bucks into this. And I think I have some smart shit figured out here. So I turn on Google AdWords. I think the first week I budgeted like $250. Then I think the first week, all of a sudden we did 1500 in sales or something like that. And I was like, holy shit, that made a big difference. Then I start tweaking the ads. I started adjusting the wording changing the click twos, putting this stuff in, tweaking, 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 and spending a little bit more, trying to get a higher spot in the AdWord count. And all of a sudden, you know, we're doing 2,000 a week, 3,000 a week. Within about four or five weeks, I think we had like our first $10,000 a week or something like that. And from that point on, I just really obsessed on Google AdWords until we could get our SEO good enough to get us up on the top there. And the best part was, Google didn't allow sparklers to be advertised. Why is that? Because they wouldn't allow fireworks to be advertised. And nobody was really doing a lot of Google advertising, so they hadn't noticed it. But after about six months, Google caught on and suddenly started shutting down all these ads. That would have sucked after you finally figured all that out, right? Figured out, and we're doing 50, 60K a month, and all of a sudden Google shuts everything down. So then I had to start looking for alternatives. I would put together ads saying, get your sparkle here. Mm -hmm. Or I bought the website WeddingDaySparkles.com and you would go to Wedding Day Sparkles and it was a clone site of Wedding Day Sparklers. And that shit would last for a month and then they'd catch on to it. And then you'd have to redo it. And we keep screwing around with the fact that they didn't want me to let you advertise sparklers, yet everyone was doing it. That's smart. It's not like you pouted and said, oh, I can't do this anymore. You just got to figure a workaround. You got to figure a workaround. They don't want you to advertise sparklers, so I'll advertise sparkles. Was there anything else that you can remember that you did? Because that, that's pretty clever. We bought all sorts of different websites. I bought a website called Set Your Wedding Apart, which had nothing to do with sparklers on it. But right on the front page, there was a big click to go to Wedding Day Sparklers. We tried everything. We changed the words. We used dollar sign symbols instead of S's because most of it was automated by Google, which is why it would take them a month to catch on because the automated stuff didn't find sparklers. But then they would get better at it and they would actually scrape the site that you were sending people to. So then we would send them to our blog page on our site instead of to the sales site. We played this runaround game for years. How much did you end up getting in sales? Because you told us there for a month, but it sounded like that must have dramatically. What were you making annually from before? The most we've ever done is about 750 in a year. Yeah, 750000 Yeah. Okay. Compared to what you're doing before, I mean, this must have been awesome for you, right? It was so cool because I was dictating how it worked, figuring it out, and you just pour gas on what works and kill what doesn't. Well, you couldn't do fireworks, you said as well. Sounds like the sparklers was your first big thing in the entrepreneurship that really helped you big time jump up. Yeah, the fireworks was enough to pay the bills, but that's it. And then the sparklers were the ones that really started making you money? Yeah, the sparklers, all of a sudden, we weren't struggling anymore. We weren't running out of money. We weren't getting worried about shit. And it's like not only those couple weeks for fireworks, right? This is a year-round business. It runs year-round. I mean, the winter is slow, but the spring, summer, and fall are busy 
all of a sudden we're bringing in cash and we had enough money coming into where we could screw around and take some chances on other stuff. We dabbled with other things and whatnot, but it allowed us to not be sweating. If you make all your money in two weeks and you get to week 47, you're damn broke. I don't care how good you are at managing money. You're broke. You're in your mid to late 30s at this point. It seems like you would be on top of the world, at least from where you were before, making almost three quarters of a million in sales per year doing this. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't bad. The problem I always feel like such a dick when I talk about money because I tell everyone, I go, your life doesn't change a lot. You just add zeros on your bills and your income. Things don't change a lot. I've never been obsessed with making sure that I make a shit ton of money. I just want to make enough money to where I don't have to worry about things. Like if I want to do something, I can do it. Or if I need to buy a car, I don't need to worry about it. There was a time in my life where I couldn't go out to eat. I didn't have any money. So you'd have to tell people, sorry, I can't go out to eat. I don't have any money. Mm -hmm. What was driving you then? Proving your uncle what he would say in? Or was there anything else motivating you at this point in time? At which point? Once things started going pretty well for you, especially business-wise. Once they start going well, then the problem is your expectations start going up a little. Probably a lot of it. I feel people are never, you never satisfied. At least I'm not. Like once I hit a podcast download amount, I'm like, oh, that was good. But that was kind of a week. You could do better. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is my therapist, I don't know if any other entrepreneurs talk about their therapist, but if they don't have one, they should, because every entrepreneur should be talking to a therapist because there's something fucked up in our heads. But yeah, I'm never really satisfied with something like, okay, that's cool. But what else could we do? I also like giving people jobs. And the only way you give people jobs is by expanding business and bringing in more money. And you got to figure out how to do that. So at what point did you realize that you needed a therapist? When did you actually get one first? Well, I'm telling you, you need one. Right. Because you just do. I started seeing one five years ago. And how has that helped you? You want to hear this? I mean, it's weird. No one's listening. It's cool. Okay, cool. My daughter got diagnosed with leukemia when she was seven. So that sucked balls. She ends up having to, and she's fine now, by the way. She's absolutely 100% fine. But she ends up going through about six months of chemotherapy. And what they're doing when they're doing chemotherapy is, with leukemia specifically is they're trying to drive the leukemia into remission, which means that they don't know if it's gone, but it's not actively screwing up the body anymore. They kept pounding her with different things and they would get it low, but not low enough. The constant conversation was, oh, well, it's close, but we were hoping for better results. She ends up having to get a bone marrow transplant from her brother. She gets that six, seven months after she was diagnosed. She almost died three times after that process and then came out of it. I told her I would never leave her alone in the hospital because I thought we were going in for a weekend because she might have had pneumonia or something like that. I spent 64 straight days after the bone marrow with her in the hospital. When we left the hospital, they told us a thousand times, you're going to be back. You're going to have issues. Everyone does. We never went back. She just took to it, healed her all up. But after all of that, and a whole bunch of things in my life leading up to this probably didn't help things either. But after that, I developed some serious PTSD. And mine manifested itself in that I already don't sleep well, but now I wouldn't sleep. I would stay up all night to make sure that I was protecting my family. Any public spaces we ever went into, I was alerting myself to exits and dangers. And this is years of shit bouncing around. But that kind of super triggered it. I was no longer able to relax ever in any way. I would sleep four and five hours a night and be on constant vigil. I never enjoyed myself when we did stuff because I was always, they call it hypervigilant state, where you spend enough time being stressed and on alert, then your brain doesn't rewire itself back to let you calm down. That's what I initially went to therapy for, was to get my brain fixed for that shit. After we kind of figured that stuff out, I just kept going because you know, when you're the boss, you don't get to whine to anybody. Right, yeah, no, it's important not to, even if you want to. I mean, you can, but that makes you a really shitty boss and no one fucking follows that guy. The buck literally stops at the top. You don't get to go whine and bitch about your bad days. So you pay a therapist to listen to you whine and bitch about your bad days. 
or you join a CEO group and suddenly you'll find out that everyone has shitty bad days and is struggling with the same shit. So it's helped ever since being able to just get that stuff off your chest, at least just out of your mind, I imagine. Yeah, I just get to dump it out. And then my therapist goes, well, have you tried this? And I go, no, why would I try that? Shouldn't they be fucking adults and know how to do that? <laughs> right. And she goes, no, Mark, not everyone knows how to do that. And I'm like, right. Okay, fine. Do you talk to her that way as well? Oh, yeah. I talk to her horribly. I have no idea why she continues seeing me with the horrible shit I say to her. <laughs> she was foolish enough to give me her cell phone number, and now I text too. As long as you're not sending dirty pictures, I guess you're good. I send her pictures of uh, Dick Clark Yeah, and tell her that I'm sending her dick pics. There you go. Oh, that's pretty clever. I'll have to use that one. That's how fucked up I am. I'm screwing around with my therapist like that. <laughs> At least it's helping you today. And I think it's something that all we could learn from, right? I think everyone should because like little things you start to learn. Going to the CEO group and talking to a therapist, you learn things like no one's ever going to give a shit about your business like you do. And you can stress yourself out about that, but it ain't going to change the reality that they're not going to give a shit about your business like you do. Right. And people are going to leave. Did that hurt when your first person left? It always sucks when people leave, unless you fire them. Right. <laughs> yeah, then it's great. Right. But when people leave, it sucks. I mean, it really sucks. Do you take it personally the first time? I took it real personal the first couple of times. <laughs> like, why would you leave me? We're doing this together. And then you start to realize, no, we're not doing this together. They're doing it for a job. Or they leave me because they're getting paid more or is it something else? Usually they get offered more. Like the guy that I started fireworks with eventually came back and worked for me. And he's one of my best friends, but he comes into my office one day, tears in his eyes and says, I'm being offered X, Y, Z. He was being offered a lot more money than I was paying to go do running a computer team or something like that. And he felt like he was letting me down. And I was like, I'm not going to be that guy that tells you, no, you need to stay with me and turn down that extra 40 grand a year or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. That's stupid. Why would you do that? Right. And so did he end up going? Yeah, he ended up going. And he's, I think he's on his fourth gig since then. But he ended up climbing the ladder in that industry, basically leading teams in computer development and just getting offered better and better jobs. Well, if we jump back to when you're a few years into your wedding day sparklers and fireworks at the same time, I mean, did everything just end up going great ever since? Everything went up and up and up? Well, no. <laughs> the minute you start thinking everything's doing great is the minute everything can fall apart on you. You'd think I would learn that by now. But one of the issues with fireworks is fireworks is driven by weather. And it's also driven by the day of the week that July 4th is on. Okay, I never thought about that. If it's like on a Tuesday versus a Saturday or Sunday or something. Yeah, if July 4th is on a Monday, then everyone buys fireworks on Friday, but they can't hold on to them, so they light them off. Then they go back out Saturday and buy more, but they're going to hang on to these till the 4th, but they don't, <laughs> they light them off. So then they come back Sunday, they do it again, they do it again. Because you've got this big weekend, a lot of time off, people get to enjoy it. If it's on a Wednesday like it was last year, most people don't get Monday and Tuesday off and don't get Thursday and Friday off. So they've got one day to really light stuff off. And then last year it was on a Wednesday and it rained till two o'clock in the afternoon. That screws everything up because if it's raining in the morning, everyone's picnic plans get canceled, their outdoor plans get canceled, and they don't go out and buy fireworks because they just assume everything's going to be wet or raining all day. So why would I want to go outside and do that? Again, it's that powder recognition that you realize that because I would have never have thought about that. For all our international listeners, I think they do know, but that's like our Independence Day. If you're doing the fireworks, it's the July 4th we're talking about. Yeah, the way we celebrate independence is by blowing shit up in our backyard. Yeah, better than killing the Indians and pretending that we all sat at a picnic table together, right? Yes, that is true. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, the stuff they teach you in high school, that's actually not true and maybe somewhat useless, right? Looking back, do we want to go at certain points in those companies? Anything else that we could learn from you? On the fireworks companies or all the I guess we got up to your upper 30s. It sounded like everything was doing pretty well. I don't know exactly what year it was. Was it like 2006, 2007? Here's the thing is because what I do is different from a lot of people because I start a bunch of shit. What I've learned is that there's a couple of things that entrepreneurs do really poorly as a group. And number one is when they get to the step where they need to hire other people, bring in people and let them kind of do their job. Most entrepreneurs just can't seem to do that because the business is their baby. 
and they're just emotionally bonded to their business so tightly that they can't possibly let somebody else do anything in that. And that's where they seem to just constantly fail and either can't grow beyond a point or they just die right there because they try to do it, but they micromanage the shit out of people. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and I was delaying it for whatever reason. And the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it, and, uh, and that's it. So I'm very happy with it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back? It was just uh, taking the time to do it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located? Here in Bolivia, in South America. Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions and I'm just there to facilitate it. That's something that you were doing too. Can kind of relate because you want to give someone something and then you're like, ah, they're not going to do it as well as you. And then you want to go back doing it, but eventually you got to let go. Well, that's the thing. You got to go in and you got to realize this. They are not going to do it as well as you. They never fucking will. Never. You will never find an employee that will do anything in your business as well as you do it. With the exception of bookkeeping. That's the one thing. You can find someone that'll do a better job for most of us. You just have to embrace that that you're going to bring people in and they're going to do less. They're also, it's not going to be their life. Most people that work for me, the business is not their life. Their life is their family, their kids, whatever else, which rightfully so is what it should be. But you have to get over that. The fact that when someone leaves at five o'clock, they don't want you calling them at 6.30. I explained to all my high-level hires that I have absolutely zero respect for personal time. And I apologize for that. I'm going to text you at 1030 at night if I have an idea because I need to tell somebody this idea. Or send them a dick pic. Or send them a dick pic. Yeah, one of the two is going to happen. You're able to get over that, you're saying. How about, is there anything else as far as other things we've learned from the sparklers or fireworks companies? How about anyone else who's got like an online company, at least something that we could have learned from you doing it? Because I think that was really smart to keep not giving up. I think so many people would have just been like, oh, well, I'm not allowed to do fireworks on the ad, so I'm going to stop. Well, if you're going to do an online sales company, you're going to spend a ton of money if you use Google AdWords. What you need is someone that knows how to do SEO. And there are a million people out there that think they know how to do (laughs) SEO. And I guarantee you the vast majority of them suck at doing SEO. It is a complicated monster and there is no rule book for it. Because in all honesty, we just talk about Google because nobody uses Bing and Yahoo. Or Ask Jeeves. Yeah, no no one's. But Google doesn't tell you how it works. And rightfully so, they shouldn't tell you how it works because then people would skirt the system. You have to find somebody that kind of understands what they're doing, why they're doing it, and also is patient because it's really easy to cheat SEO, but you will get caught. And we've seen this with a couple of people on Sparklers to where they've used, what does he call them? He calls them Black Flag. Black Hat SEO. Yeah, Black Hat SEO. And we've seen them get their sites blacklisted and disappear. And Google is really good at catching that shit. They don't catch it for a while, but within a couple of months, they'll catch that shit and they'll shut you down completely. So you have to do it the right way, which takes time. It just takes time. And the more people that are in the business trying to get attention, the harder it is, which is why I like niche businesses because I don't have a lot of competition. Yeah, I know we hit on that on the pre-interview, which is kind of smart. And But as far as the black hat thing, you were saying with the sparklers, like, did you ever get in trouble for any of that since you were doing these different websites and getting around the ads? I got threatened a couple of times. I got nasty Google emails a couple of times. Things like, hey, you can't do this shit. We can tell what you're doing. And I would just sit and talk with my web guy and go, okay, how do we avoid this? So then we would start advertising. We would use sparklers as keywords and we would advertise through our blog page. And with that, they really can't complain because you're not sending them to a sales page. You're sending them to an advice page. And these people are looking for advice on sparklers. That's how we kind of got around it for the longest time was by saying in there, you don't get as much traffic because the more clicks someone has to make, the less likely they are to buy something. 
at least you still had some traffic versus like zero if they totally shut you down. Exactly. But by the time it started getting really heated and angry, we had gotten up to number one in SEO. By that point, I started writing letters like, well, then shut down all the Sparkler ads if that's what you want to do. Go right ahead. I don't give a shit, but you got to shut down everyone. You can't just shut me down because I was number one in the organic search. So I didn't care at that point if they shut down the ad. Right. Parts. Okay. Yeah. So you almost would hope that they would, right? And they actually did for about six months or maybe a year. They shut down all Sparklers AdWords. And I was like, hell yeah, I'll take that yeah. shit. Because they probably thought they were getting back at you for doing that. But really, you're playing into yeah, that. Yeah, it was perfect. It worked out perfect yeah. for me. So how many people do you have working with you today? Oh, what do I have? I think 11 full-time people will bring on 50 seasonal people. I think that's right. We run a pretty skinny ship. Okay. Because you have one holding group that you kind of hold over all this that just so we get an idea, you're saying 11 employees and they kind of jump around in the companies depending on what you need help with? Well, I've got three employees that it all starts with one parent company and me and two employees are employed by that parent company. And then everyone else is employed by the actual company that they work for. And me and the two employees, uh, one is my accountant, bookkeeper, controller, and what else does she like to call herself? My intellectual superior, my assistant, she does that. Your wife as well? Is that her? No, that's not my <laughs> wife. That's my I'm girl. kidding. <laughs> I call her the work wife because she basically fills that role at work. There you go. See, I knew. And then we didn't touch much on the soda company. If you have a few more minutes, like as far as expanding that and doing that now. Sure. That's been my money dump for the last year, year and a half. So I started off the soda shop. When I opened it, I didn't even hire anybody because I didn't think anyone would come in. I had a buddy of mine help me put sodas on the shelf. And then I had him help me on opening day when we did our big opening day event. Now I advertise more on Facebook than I do on Google or anywhere else. But we got absolutely pounded on our opening day event. And I was like, okay, well, that was cute for this one day, but people won't still keep coming in. And I opened a small business Saturday right after Thanksgiving. Lo and behold, people just kept coming in. I told my buddy, I said, hey, can you come in and help me work a little bit? Because I'm working open to close every damn day and I'm not getting any work done because I have to keep going out and talking to people on the floor. So he comes in. I worked the first 60 or 70 days open to close. And people still kept coming in. So I was like, okay, shit, something's working. So I hired him. We ended up hiring some more people. About a year later, we acquired a bottling line and two existing soda brands. And once we took that on, we jumped into distribution as well because people wanted to buy the soda. So all of a sudden, we're distributing all over the Twin Cities, selling to a couple hundred different places. And I took any sort of money that I may have made in the last couple of years and have dumped it all into manufacturing distribution. Mm -hmm. For just soda money that you made? No, I haven't made anything on the soda company yet because every time it starts to go forward, I'll do something else to dump a bunch of money into it. I knocked down all the walls, kicked out all the tenants. You know, these people that hand you a check every single month? Yeah, something called rent. Yeah, reliably, so you don't have to do anything. Yeah, I kicked all them out and expanded the store to like triple the size of the store, be able to include the manufacturing area and for people to be able to see it, see our bottler going on and whatnot. So I've spent the last year or two basically just dumping money into this business to try and accelerate it to the next level. Has it been working? It's getting it's slowly but surely. Well, we appreciate you doing an interview. I don't know if there's any other last words of wisdom that you have for everyone who's listening. I do appreciate the variety of background. And I think the one thing that I learned, even in the pre-interview, I've learned lots of things here, but you're just talking about the niche businesses and not having competition. I thought that was a really smart way to look about it. If you want to expand maybe a little bit on that for anyone who's thinking about opening a business. Yeah, one of the things I'm going to start talking more about and talking, trying to actually be that guy on a stage talking about shit and people thinking he's smart and knows what the hell he's talking about is uh, I've listened to a bunch of business podcasts and it's always some, I shouldn't say always, but a lot of times some guy that's going, oh yeah, I'll teach you how to make a $10 million, $50 million a year business. And I'm like, why the fuck would you want that? I mean, do you know the headaches that go with a $50 million a year business, for God's sakes? It's monstrous. And the likelihood of you hitting it is very slim. So why are you going to kill yourself to that level? And I get it. I mean, some people just need that. But 
if you're going after a $50 million business, you're also competing with a bunch of big guys out there who are already in that industry. Now, there's not a lot of new industries that are going to pop up to do $50 million. I like little niche businesses. Give me a business that'll do 300, 400, 500 grand a year. You can make a great living off of a three, four, five hundred thousand dollar a year business. If it's just you and maybe your spouse helping you or one worker, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You can pay yourself a six figure income. You can keep it nice and steady. You can keep control over it because it hasn't gotten too big and too crazy. I just don't understand the constant sales pitches and the constant speaking guys getting up and telling you. There was a guy on someone else's podcast that said, if you don't have $10 million or something like that, you're a piece of shit. I don't know, something like that. And I was like, fuck that guy. What the hell is he talking? Mm. Like, that guy is obviously a very unhappy human being. (laughs) Yeah, that's all he's saying. He's happy, right? Because he probably has it. I have all this money. Look at how happy I am. No, no, you're not. If you're spending all that money, you're happy. I mean, I just got back from two weeks in Italy. That was shit tons of fun. That's what you should do with your money. I think that's very important to figure out. You even mentioned it earlier, and I've read studies on that. After you make 60K a year, you can have the exact type of happiness that anyone who makes a million dollars in revenue a year, if you're smart about the way you spend it, you can still do it. Yeah, exactly. You're not getting happier as you make more money. Once you get to the point to where you can pay your bills and you don't have to stress about money, that's it. Once you've hit that point, everything else is just gravy on top of that. And I'm playing the long game because I don't pay myself a crazy salary. And I try and build equity in my properties and in my businesses and everything like that. So that when I do decide I don't want to do this shit anymore, I can cash out, have plenty of money and be able to do whatever I want after that. Instead of I could pay myself a ridiculous salary right now but I'd be draining it out of my businesses and my equity and everything else. I don't need it right now. I need it when I have a lot more free time and I can do what I want. And I'm sure you're looking at like tax implications and smart things like that. Jeez, man. It does nothing but kill you. That's one of the things. Oh, entrepreneurs don't know taxes. (laughs) They don't know taxes and they don't know bookkeeping. Hire a decent bookkeeper. That's rule number one, because you will Fuck yourself over if you do not have a good bookkeeper. Did you not have a good bookkeeper at first? I was my bookkeeper at first. I am a terrible bookkeeper. I got audited seven, eight years ago. It does not take a lot of mistakes to add up to a really big tax debt in a hurry. Because if you make a $5,000 error, they're going to hit you with $10,000 in fines and penalties and late fees. Wow. So yeah, any suggestions on hiring a good one? Because I think that's an important point that a lot of us don't think about because that's kind of the boring stuff, right? That you don't necessarily want to dream about. Yeah, nobody dreams about sitting in front of QuickBooks. <laughs> After I got audited, I hired a bookkeeper whose job was she just did other people's books, but she did lots of companies' books and she would just dedicate several hours a week to you because you can't afford a bookkeeper when you start off. But you can't afford someone that only charges you four or $500 a month to keep all your shit in line. There's a recent interviewee that we had. I think he falls in the same personality type as you and probably a lot of other like entrepreneurs because, again, it's, that's kind of one of the last things you want to do. And his advice was just, if you're looking for a bookkeeper and anyone in that sort of position, hire someone who's boring. Yes. Even if they bore you, you don't need to find a guy who's got the same personality that you do to do your bookkeeping. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to offend the bookkeepers. It's all right. I don't think you have to worry about offending anyone. Yeah, well, that's true. Your bookkeeper should be boring as fuck. There you go. Unfortunately, the one I have in my office, my full-time one now, she's not even close to boring, but she's been a godsend in my business. But the one I had before, Mary, who will never listen to this, so I don't have to worry. Mary was a pretty dull human being. And I love Mary, but she was not... Yeah, not the woman you want to get a beer with, right? Yeah, so your lawyers should be assholes. Your bookkeepers should be boring. You see how I did that full circle with the beer thing? Perfect. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is entrepreneurs are also... We're not money savvy because we like taking risks. And sometimes to our detriment, we'll take risks. And we need someone to kind of tell us, hey, careful with this, careful with that, because otherwise we'll go crazy trying shit. Especially if you get some success, then you start to think you can make anything work. Well, we appreciate you spending some time here, Mark, and telling us about your journey. I think if we get enough people interested, maybe we could do a follow-up on if they've got Q&A, if you're interested in that. 
Fuck yeah. I love Q&A. There you go. Also, yeah, if you're looking for a speaker gig, I think you just send them this interview and then uh, you'll get one right away. <laughs> I hope. I, for some reason, can't seem to figure out how to get into that. I was booked to speak at a college and then I told them, I said, am I not allowed to swear? And they said, well, no, we would prefer it. And I said, well, I'll do my best. <laughs> and they said, I don't think we need you anymore. <laughs> And I was like, these are college kids for Christ's sake. Well, what are you worried about? You think I'm going to say something they've never heard before? I've just always said, everyone swears. Let's not pretend like it doesn't exist because those words have meaning. And there are some times that you can't pick another word that is going to have the same emotional feeling as that word. Like, oh, darn it, when it probably fit some of your mistakes, right? I made some mistakes. No, I fucked up. Everyone knows what fucking there you go. Well, thank you, Mark, for spending time with us. If someone wanted to reach out and like connect with you or email you or just say thanks for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to do that? Email is always best. I'm constantly checking it. I sleep with my phone under my pillow. And you can put my email up on this. You got okay. it. Okay. We'll put those in the show notes for anyone who wants to get in touch with Mark. Thanks again for spending time with us. We do appreciate it, Mark. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that episode and time to thank our newest gold members. Amy Baker of Threadbare Print House. If you need a t-shirt printed, she's the lady to do it for you. Go check out her website by scrolling to the episode notes below. And Pablo Burrito in Tijuana, Mexico. Thank you for becoming a gold Patreon member and supporting the podcast as well. He owns a dental technology company called Zantech. And our last gold member of the day, Jason York. He's a real estate investor in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and draws tons of inspiration and information from the podcast. So if you need a vacay and you're in the Tennessee area, then go check out his rentals by scrolling to the episode notes below. Now our silver member shoutouts include Gareth Lube at Winderful Wines in Cape Town, South Africa, Andrew Husted, a student at the University of Michigan, my sister went there, so shout out to the Wolverines. Jesse Gavin in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who we're hoping to get his bro on the podcast soon. And Dan King in New York, New York, who's an ex-lawyer that's helping other frustrated lawyers make the transition to their next career move. And our bronze member shout out, Scott Carter. I have no idea where you're located, so shoot me an email with your info. And Stella Shao, a grad student in Northeastern University, in New York City, New York. Thank you to all our new Patreon supporters. And don't forget, you too can help support the podcast and move your business forward by visiting millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Or scroll to the bottom of your episode notes right now to learn more about our new supporters and how to become a supporter yourself. 